KPTW News Time is 8.06. You're listening to the local news hour. Let's find out what's in store for our weather uh, this weekend. Somehow, I don't think it's going to be a surprise. On the phone, I have Thomas Geeboy with ABC4. Uh, what, what, what makes you think that? <laughs> Thomas, you've been consistent over the last few, couple, few, few weeks. Yeah, that we have, and uh, we got more in store. Now, it, it won't snow 100% of the time as we go throughout the next seven days, but we do definitely have more snow in the forecast, and today we're kind of getting a small little taste. There's a weak disturbance that's moving through. We've already seen a little bit of snow around Park City. It really hasn't created any slushy roads or anything around the Wasatch back, but they're definitely running wet, so if anybody's getting ready to head outside, something that you might want to take into consideration, and we're going to have a chance for snow from now through around 2 o'clock this afternoon. So this system working its way through during the first portion of the day and we're really not expecting that much in the way of any accumulations maybe an inch or two for the wasatch back so nothing significant but definitely enough to keep the roadways possibly slick and then as we make our way through the afternoon high pressure is briefly going to settle in and the key word there is going to be briefly so i wouldn't be surprised if we get some sunshine poking through the daytime high climbing to 29 degrees it'll be breezy at times so it'll likely feel like temperatures are in the low to mid 20s this afternoon then into tonight as i mentioned we have the high pressure that's briefly settling in so while we'll probably get some clearing late this afternoon into the early evening by the overnight hours Clouds will start to increase because the high pressure will start to move away. The overnight low dropping to around 10 degrees. And then for our Saturday, we're going to see the chance for snow more or less increasing as we go throughout the day. And the system coming in between Saturday and Sunday is going to have a little bit more oomph to it compared to the system that we're seeing out there today. So between Saturday and Sunday, we could definitely see over a few inches of snow in the Wasatch back. And Saturday night alone, we could see several inches of snow. So about a 60% chance during the daytime hours on Saturday, a 90% chance on Saturday night. And we'll hold on to a 70% chance during the day on Sunday. Daytime highs will range right around 30 degrees. And with a little bit more cloud coverage and a little bit more wind, the overnight lows will be more so in the mid to upper teens, both Saturday night and Sunday night. The chance for snow does stick around into early next week. The chance won't run as high compared to what we're going to see over the weekend, but still about a 50-50 chance both Monday and Tuesday. Could definitely see some more accumulations there. At this point, Wednesday looks mostly calm, but still maybe about a 20% chance of snow. And we'll also hold on to a chance for additional snow showers going into Thursday of next week. Daytime highs leveling out in the upper 20s to around 30. And overnight lows will mainly be around 10 degrees. And over the weekend with the strong winds uh, to go along with those overnight lows in the teens, it's going to feel even colder. So we got more snow in the forecast, so not a surprise for Park City. But it won't be nonstop snow 100% of the time. Just something to be aware of. You know, Thomas, as, as, a, as a ski community, we obviously love to see a lot of of snow in a season is there and and this season has been remarkable do you have any thoughts as to you know why does a season like this happen what is it that creates this kind of repeating weather pattern well so what we had earlier um what we had earlier this season was the atmospheric river so we had all of the systems that were kind of that funneled in the california that were able to make their way towards us because of the upper level flow and this season in the western United States has been significant, but if you look conversely to the eastern United States, it has been very warm, and they really haven't seen a lot of moisture. I mean, I think in the northeast around New York City, they finally first saw their first decent snowfall of the season just this past week. So we've had more or less high pressure just kind of as a general thing, high pressure set up in the eastern United States, and that's allowed more active to continue out west. And we're going to kind of see more of the same pattern, and the Climate Prediction Center predicting a higher uh, above average month when it comes to precipitation for the western U.S. So this pattern might not go away anytime soon. Thank you, Thomas, and have a good weekend. You too. Now let's find out what all this snow means for the backcountry. On the phone, I have Greg from the Utah Avalanche Center with today's Avalanche conditions. Center.
Good morning. Yeah, it's always fun to follow Thomas um, <laughs> with the weather, that's for sure. And yeah, the extended, you know, well into March just looks the same as it's been um, pretty much all winter long with just kind of one storm after another. Um, it's been pretty remarkable over the last eight days or so. Uh, the Salt Lake City, Park City Mountains have received about six feet of snow. I mean, that's a lot of snow, six inches of water. Um, and we've had some strong winds. <clears throat> and when you get this kind of load on a snowpack, even even though we have a generally stable snowpack, <clears throat> when you get this kind of a load on a snowpack, um, if there's a weak layer somewhere, that amount of snow, that amount of water weight, that amount of wind loading will find the weak layer. And we, found, we had three avalanches reported from Thursday. These are all on northwest aspects at about 10,000 feet. Um, one was in Hideaway Park. This is in um, a ridgeline between Silver Fork and Days Fork in the Salt Lake Mountains. Uh, there was another one in Cardiff Fork, uh, something called Holy Toledo. <laughs> and then uh, the larger avalanche was um, in unskied terrain from control work at a Cottonwood resort, unskied terrain, so there weren't, weren't um, resort skiers nearby. Um, and it pulled out a hard slab avalanche that was five feet deep. And this is just so typical of the kind of pattern we've had uh, this winter. We, we get lots of snow. And again, if there's a weak layer somewhere in the snowpack, it's going to find it. Um, so the two primary avalanche problems for today, we're continuing talking about new snow. And typically when we say new snow, we're thinking of something that fell within the last 24 hours or so. But when we're talking about new snow right now, we're, we're going back about a week um, because we have the slab of, of dense storm snow that fell this past week. Um, and it's, yeah, in some places, four to five feet deep. Um, we're also talking about wind-drifted snow, and we had a lot of winds this past week. And today's winds are going to have some fresh snowfall to work with. So not only could we have some deeper wind slabs that formed earlier this week and are, and are covered by some fresh snow, but we could also see some fresh storm slabs that formed today. Um, the, I think the wind-drifted snow today won't, won't be all that widespread, um, 6 to 12 inches deep at most, but may be sensitive in some places. So overall, moderate avalanche danger, that means human-triggered avalanches are possible all aspects, all elevations. And we may have a rising avalanche danger this weekend with more snow and wind on the way. Well, uh, it sounds like a good weekend to be cautious with all of this uh, heavy snow out there. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. It's, good. it's a good season to be cautious. That's what we're trying to tell people. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Have a good weekend. Stay tuned. Coming up, I'll be speaking with Caitlin Marusis of, of UDOT about the new Summit County Traffic Dashboard. And then we're going to finish our hour by chatting with Greg Oppenheimer, the son of legendary TV producer Jess Oppenheimer and the author of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Sitcom, a comedy that will be pre presented Sunday afternoon by the Park City Institute at the Eccles Theater here in Park City. Okay, let's look at some local news. It's the last week of the legislative session, and it's been a stressful one for Summit County. Multiple bills have highlighted the fraught relationship between the county and state lawmakers. KPCW's Connor Thomas has more. The current state legislative session, which ends Friday, has produced multiple bills which local leaders say single out Summit County, either for punishment or to keep it from getting benefits. The powder keg has been Senate Bill 84, which could give Dakota Pacific the right to build its mixed-use housing development in Kimball Junction without county approval. County Council Chair Roger Armstrong said at the council's meeting last week that some state legislators say the county is a bad actor. He asked people down in the valley how Summit County was being portrayed in the state house. The answer that came back was it's non-specific. You're just being portrayed as, as 
doing bad things up there and that there's no choice but for the legislature to correct it. He mentioned one specific narrative circling the state house: the idea that the county is against building more housing. Summit County already has multiple affordable housing projects that consist entirely of affordable units, although that's an increasingly tough business prospect as land and construction costs skyrocket. It's no secret the lack of affordable housing is a crisis. Fewer than 15% of Park City employees live within city limits, and Mountainlands Community Housing Trust estimates that about 8,000 workers commute from outside Summit County to work in Park City daily. State lawmakers cite this crisis when they discuss SB 84. On the Utah House and Senate floors, lawmakers say the bill is about Summit County doing its part to meet housing needs. Here's Senator Kirk Cullimore. And this bill simply allows the state a way to cure when we have um, sub-political entities that are not, that are not participating in the programs and, and furthering the policies of the state. Dakota Pacific executives told the county council last week that its lobbyists communicated with the state officials who drafted language in SB 84, and they echoed legislators' assertions that Summit County needs to help solve the statewide housing crisis. In response, county councilors say the legislature is trying to force a one-size-fits-all approach to the housing crisis onto Summit County. But the county is an extreme demographic outlier in Utah, so what may work elsewhere won't work here. Councilmember Chris Robinson doubts that Dakota Pacific's project would help solve the issue, highlighting that market rate units to the proposal will still be out of reach for workers because the local market is so expensive. Whereas in other parts of the state, if you increase supply, that may make it more affordable, more within reach. Armstrong said last week that those who could afford market rate units in Dakota Pacific's development would just increase the need for more services and workers to meet their needs. But this is just one disagreement of many, and state legislators have drafted other bills that single out Summit County in different ways. Senate Bill 175 would help rural counties, specifically third through sixth class counties, fund infrastructure projects and maintain roads. Summit County is a third class county, but the only one that would be ineligible for funds appropriated by the bill. Deputy County Manager Jana Young said the county was written out of the bill on purpose. I guess there's some heartburn among a lot of legislators for spending state money on county roads to begin with. And yet they could justify it for what they're calling the poorer, more rural counties. Well, they didn't feel like Summit County was a poor rural county. And so uh, didn't feel like we needed this new money. And then there's House Bill 364, which essentially supplements SB 84. It too establishes penalties for not complying with moderate income housing laws and could solidify Dakota Pacific's right to develop without county approval. The flurry of bills begs the question of why the county and state clash. The animus goes back farther than just this legislative session. Robinson said he believes there's a bad aftertaste in state lawmakers' mouths from the hideout controversy, when a bill opened up a loophole that allowed hideout to attempt to annex county land without the county's knowledge. You know, we stood our ground and, and, uh, and defended ourselves. Robinson said the hideout and Dakota Pacific controversies follow similar playbooks. A similar kind of thing where seek, seek uh, power from the legislature to do what landowners or developers wanted. Summit County took Hideout to court and has prevailed so far. The Utah Supreme Court is set to hear oral arguments in Hideout's appeal Monday. In the case of Dakota Pacific, Robinson says Summit County is an easy target if state lawmakers want to weaponize issues like affordable housing. There's, uh, you know, 
the old saying, let no crisis go to waste. Summit County and the state both struggle against the tide of economic forces when it comes to creating affordable housing. And the county would like to solve problems like the housing issue in its own way. If this state legislative session is any indication, Utah lawmakers aren't keen on allowing Summit County to have that kind of independence. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. The Utah Utes women's basketball team on February 25th beat Stanford to clinch a share of the Pac-12 regular season title. One of the stars on that team is Summit County native Kennedy McQueen. KPCW's Jack Footer has more. Kennedy McQueen grew up in Hennifer in a basketball family. Her mom played for the Utah Utes in the 90s and her siblings played basketball as well. She was even the manager of North Summit's high school basketball team throughout elementary and middle school. After the 2019-2020 season, which was McQueen's junior year of high school, she was named the Utah Gatorade Player of the Year. It is an award that has been given out since 1985 to recognize outstanding high school athletes in football, basketball, baseball, soccer, track and field, and cross country for athletic excellence, academic achievement, and character. McQueen said what made the award special was being from such a small town. I don't think too many people from a small school get highlighted on that big of stage on that big of level. So just being able to get that award and just one, it showed me that anything's possible and that hard work does pay off. And two, anyone else that has the same goals or dreams that I did, it's possible. Jerry Holmes was McQueen's high school coach at North Summit. He said she was a natural leader and team motivator. She could get after girls to get them, you know, more motivated and, and whatever, but it was mainly leadership through her actions. Um, no one ever outworked her. We do a drill in practice. We call it four on four on four, and it's three teams of four, and first team to five, five baskets wins. And, and in the four years that she was there, her team hardly ever lost. And she just made sure that her team was going to win, and she just made the other three girls want to play harder. Along with playing for North Summit, McQueen competed during the summers in AAU basketball, which is club basketball. She made the trip every other week to Colorado to play for a team called Colorado Premier, which was coached by Utes legend Keith Van Horn. Van Horn is the Utes' all-time leading scorer. McQueen added that playing AAU basketball brings out college coaches and recruiters. She had a big choice to make when it came to her college decision as she had 25 D1 offers. McQueen said that growing up a Utes fan was one of the main reasons she chose to play basketball at Utah. I think that was my dream from when I was little to walk in my mom's footsteps and play on the same court she did and represent the same school she did. So yes, I think I did have decisions to make and especially when it came down to my top two and decided between them. It was really challenging. It was just a flat-out no-brainer, but at the end of the day, I always knew what my dream and goal was to be, and that was to be a Utah U. This season, the Utes went 25-3 and overall and are currently ranked as the number three team in the nation. It's gearing up for the Pac-12 tournament that runs through March 5th at Michelob Ultra Arena in Las Vegas. A link to view the entire Pac-12 tournament bracket can be found in the web version of this report at kpcw.org. McQueen said that since the team's loss last year in the NCAA tournament to Texas, it's focused on the 1-0 mentality. She said that that means they don't want to look too far out. They just focus on the next game. The Utes will be in action in the second round, March 2nd at 7 p.m. against the Washington State Cougars. The game will be televised on the Pac-12 network.
Once the Pac-12 tournament wraps up, the Utes will have to wait until March 12th to find out their spot in the NCAA bracket. According to recent projections, the Utes look to be one of the four number one seeds. Jack Footer, KPCW News. KPCW News time is 8.23. Unfortunately for the women's basketball team of Utah, they lost last night in that first round of the Pac-12 tournament to Washington State Cougars by a score of 66-58. to Traffic in the greater Park City area is a source of frustration on an almost daily basis, particularly during high-use periods like powder days. And while there is as yet no magic bullet that will solve all of our traffic woes, Utah, UDOT, has introduced a new website dashboard that can provide information that will greatly enhance your ability to plan your trips. Here to explain is UDOT's Kaylin Marusis. Good morning, Kaylin. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Roger. Thank you. How are you? Excellent. Uh, it's snowing in Park City, something that almost never happens. Caitlin, let's start by giving a bit of the overview. What is the dashboard? Yeah, so as you alluded in the intro, um, it doesn't matter if you're a longtime resident or a visitor, you have noticed that Utah is a very well-loved place and it's getting very busy. So in addition to plowing snow and building bridges, one of the things that UDOT tries to provide is public information tools to help the traveling public better plan their trip. And so we have our UDOT traffic app, which is statewide, updates folks on things like construction closures, lane closures. But this dashboard that we're talking about today is intended to be much more geographically specific for Summit County. Um, and it's really geared towards, like you said, right now, skiers. Um, we do intend this to be used by anybody. So park, you know, for the Park City Arts Fest, um, if you're up there looking at leaves in the fall, but right now it's really focused on, you know, the big powder days, big skier visits in the winter. So um, what we've done is kind of tried to do some pre-determined um, segments that are really geared towards those users. So it'll kind of indicate from like Kimball Junction to Park City or Quinns to Deer Valley, and it'll give you an idea of what kind of travel times you can expect. So how do you go about creating something like this? Where does the information come from and how complicated is it to build a website? Right. Yeah. So what this uses is called probe data. So probe data is anonymized and it uses um, either GPS signals from an onboard vehicle navigation system, which most newer vehicles have these days, or cell phones pinging cell towers. And again, I want to emphasize this is anonymized. And it's called probe data because essentially you treat each vehicle as a probe in the stream of traffic. And so it'll track one of those vehicles on these predetermined segments and tell us how long it's taking the vehicle to make that trip from the origin to the destination. And then what we do is we compare it. We know what a free flow time on each segment should be. And that's a time with no delays, no impediments, no crashes, no adverse weather. And then we compare it to what we're actually seeing from that probe data. And then we can give users an estimated delay um, from slight to moderate to significant along, along those specific corridors. So, so it's not using cameras. It's actually pinging off data from the individual vehicles and the individual phones. Yes, correct. And one of the really exciting things that I want to um, highlight here is in the past, UDOT's been the only one that can use this data. Um, it's expensive. We have contracts every year with the, the providers. And we, what we just renegotiated this fall was the ability in our purchase agreement to be able to share this with all public Utah entities. 
So that's why we're able to collaborate with Summit County and Park City on something like this, because we have been able to open up the sharing of this data to work with other public entities, even contractors that may be working for Park City Municipal. And we're even starting to work with some of our adjoining state DOTs. So this is, it's really cool. This is kind of the first time we've been able to share this data like this and leverage it outside of only UDOT-specific projects. The thing about traffic data is in order for it to be valuable, it's got to be current. So how often are these pings going to get updated and and incorporated into the information we find on the website? Right. So um, we do have a disclaimer on this dashboard. Data is refreshed every 10 to 20 minutes, um, and it is not updated overnight between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. Um, It is a pretty heavy load on our servers to refresh data constantly. So that's why we kind of try to limit it to those high, those peak use times during the day. And then there is a little bit of a delay because of how we need to pull the data in and then push it back out to this public facing dashboard. And uh, you mentioned earlier, as we started the the interview, talk about the app. Where can I, I, what's the easiest way for a user to access this data? Right. So we've created um, a a clean URL for this dashboard. So it's Summit County, all spelled out, summitcounty.udot.utah.gov. And I know um, Park City Municipal has tweeted out the link. UDOT has tweeted out the link. So we're hoping, you know, to start promoting it on social media. Um, And we're, we're really trying to build these kind of dashboards out for all sorts of recreation hotspots. Anyone who, you know, recreates outdoors knows that Zion is busy and Bryce is busy and Arches is busy. The Cottonwood Canyons are busy. And so we're really, um, we think this is a really helpful thing for the traveling public to start to build some of these tools to help people better understand how to plan their trips. And, you know, I, pu- I pulled it up, Caitlin, and one of the things that, that really struck me was the first questions that are on your mind, you know, like questions like, you know, what's 248 looking like? What's 224 looking like? They are the sort of first three or four entries on the on the dashboard, and it really is uh, pretty instructive. The, and I take it we have a range from free flow. What, 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 are the, what are the range of delay categories that we can see on the website? Yeah, so, um, so yeah, so free flow is the travel time without any impediments and not without any delays. And we've got it binned. Um, a moderate delay is going to be one and a half times set, and a significant delay is going to be two and a half times set. So, anytime you're seeing um, travel times, you know, more than double uh, what you'd expect a free flow time is, and and we we try to normalize it and make it a percentage of because obviously if it's a four-minute free flow segment and there's only a one-minute delay, that's, you know, pretty significant. But if it's a 45-minute travel time with a one-minute delay, that's that's less significant. So we normalize that data um, comparing it to the free flow times to try to bin those into the different delay categories. And, and of course, one of the most important things is it does have a current travel time uh, number in there. So if you're trying to figure out if you got to leave to make your restaurant reservation out at the junction, yep. it gives you, it gives you the, the number of minutes that you think it's going to take us to get there. Um, there's other things on that website too that are of value. I mean, you don't just have this this magnificent dashboard. What 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 other information is provided? I, I think there's some cameras and other things. Yeah, we kind of wanted to make this a one-stop shop, and we've formatted it so it looks good on either your mobile device or your computer. We know that a lot of folks are using these tools on their phones. Um, We've also on the map put in the park and ride locations, so if traffic is just such a mess, um, we would like to indicate to people where they can maybe try to hop on a bus. Um, We've also 
put links in there to both Park City Transit and High Valley Transit to help you plan your trips. Um, we've got links to, yes, the UDOT traffic cameras so you can see what real-time conditions are looking like. Maybe if there's a crash, you can see which lanes are closed. We've got um, links to the live, those large overhead electronic signs on the freeway that have the variable messaging. We've got links to those so you can see those also report current travel times or crash information. And then we've also got road weather forecasts and um, Park City municipal weather forecasts. So people can kind of plan ahead. Maybe if you're going to the resort in the morning and the weather's clear, you can figure out if, you know, maybe you're going to want to leave early because there's a storm coming in or something. And I take it you could just type this URL in on your smartphone. Um, Kaylin, have you considered, have you guys considered having an app that takes you directly to this particular Summit County site? Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, and we're always looking for feedback and suggestions. So I would love for folks as they use this to reach out to us, you know, with, this is, you know, let's consider it a, a, you know, first cut at it and we want some feedback and we want to know, you know, how to make it most useful to the people that are using it. And so, yeah, we love those kind of suggestions. This kind of stuff is always a work in progress as mm-hmm. we get um, feedback from the public. Now, are, are there similar products that you guys have fielded in other parts of the state and, uh, or, and, and do other cities do things like this? Um, the other obvious one, we've got something similar um, for the Wasatch Front. We've got a dashboard like this for the Cottonwood Canyons. You know, in the re- day of the mega passes, there's a lot of people that can jump between resorts, right? And so there's people who may ski on the Wasatch back one day and maybe skiing on the Wasatch Front the other day. So we've got a similar dashboard um, for the Cottonwood Canyons. Um, you know, we'd like to probably get something together maybe for Zion and Bryce, some of those Southern Utah hotspots. Um, again, with this data sharing agreement that we came to, that really opens a lot of doors. Up until this point, it was really only UDOT could leverage this data. And so we're really excited to start to partner with other public entities to try to start putting together these you know, geographically specific travel tools. Uh, are there any other kinds of, this is obviously a pretty innovative thing. It's a pretty creative use of data to provide information. Have you got anything else, uh, you know, in your back pocket that you guys are thinking of introducing in the, in the near future? Um, you know, this is, this is a big focus, kind of these public facing tools, you know, Google maps has been around a long time. So that's the exciting thing is the public is pretty map and data literate these days, right? Smartphones have made that accessible. So it's fun, you know, we do live in the era of big data. And so to be able to turn that into useful, actionable tools for folks is, is one of the more fun things we get to work on. Before we go, Kaylin, is there anything else you would like our, our, our listeners to know about with respect to UDOT and Summit County? Um, just that, uh, you know, we understand that, that traffic can be frustrating. Um, I guess one of the last things I'll say is on this dashboard as well, we do have a link to live snowplow locations. And so on those really snowy days, I know nobody likes getting stuck behind the plows, but it generally will make your trip a lot easier if you can wait for the plows to come through your area. So that is another thing that's on this dashboard is our plows have live um, automated vehicle tracking locations. So you can see those on the map with this dashboard. So um, that's another nifty tool for those big powder days. I know everybody's always in a hurry to get out there first, but um, take a look at where the plows are. It might make your trip a little bit easier and safer. I'm a nervous driver. I like driving behind the snowplow, Caitlin. <laughs> there you go. This tool's for you then. Okay. Remind our listeners that the website is summitcounty.udot.utah.gov. Caitlin, thanks for spending time with us. Thank you.
With support from Hebrew City government leaders, a proposal to transform an old theater into an entertainment center could lead the city to loosen some parking regulations. KPCW's Ben Lasseter has more. A Hebrew City man says now is the time to create fun things to do on Main Street, and he has a plan for one historic building. That would require an exception from current parking rules or change to how they work in Heber, and City Planning Commission members said on Tuesday they were interested. Jeremy Smith recently told the city council he's buying the old Ideal Theater and wants to turn it into an entertainment center with an arcade and performance hall. On Tuesday, he told the planning commission the goal is to create a business that would bring more life and fun to the area. I personally have a very vested interest in downtown um, with a couple of developments I'm working on currently, but I think downtown is so, 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 so much potential. I would love the opportunity to you know, work with the city and bring something where we have a foot traffic coming downtown. We have people that come into Heber and they are in downtown and then they go out and ski or they mountain bike or they ATV, but the parking is the issue. I mean, I want to make this as awesome as possible and have our youth out of their houses doing active things. On February 7th, Heber City Council members said they were interested in the idea. Some, such as Mike Johnston, said it was a good enough idea that it superseded the parking concerns. He argued Hebrides already make do with a shortage of parking spaces for events such as the Thursday market on Main in the summer. Because the idea includes adding a second floor and more square footage, city code requires the business to provide new parking, about 75 spaces according to city planners at Tuesday's meeting. City planner Jamie Barron described two options to allow Smith to carry out his idea. He said both align with the city council's recent directives to find a way around the parking requirement. First. The city could approve a development agreement and allow Smith an exception to the rule. When Planning Commissioner Oscar Covarrubias asked if that would set a bad precedent, Barron said the city can still handle future applications on a case-by-case -case basis. So we're not required to give anybody else a development agreement just because we gave somebody else one. We look at it, what are the merits? Do we find that its merits benefit the city or are something that we think is, is good? Or do we find that its merits are not good, right? And so we judge it by its merits. Another option is to change the city zoning laws. Planning commissioners said in the future, they might look at making parking requirements depend on how much traffic a business is expected to generate, not the square footage of its building. The planning commission didn't take action at the meeting, but Smith and city staff said they'd work together on a proposal to bring back for the formal approval process. That hasn't been scheduled for a future meeting yet. If the planning commission makes recommendations about Smith's proposal or parking rules overall in the future, the city council would have to vote to confirm them. This is a developing story. KPCW will continue to provide updates as they become available. Ben Lasseter, KPCW News. She Said tells the story of two investigative journalists who uncovered Harvey Weinstein's multiple crimes, which ultimately brought him to justice. It will be shown next Thursday. KPCW's Andrea Buchanan has this report. Before Me Too was a worldwide movement, there were two journalists at the New York Times who received a tip from an actress about a rape by movie producer Harvey Weinstein. That tip and hundreds of hours of investigative journalism led to the undoing and criminal convictions of the movie mogul. She Said, a film based on the book by the same title, tells the story of journalists Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy and how the article they published in 2017 about the abuse of several Hollywood stars paved the way for a social reckoning as millions of women came forward with stories of sexual assault. Here is Sally Tauber, Executive Director of Peace House, a domestic violence shelter in Park City. 
Jody uh, Cantor was here in December and we had um, held a small event. She points out that she wasn't really trying to take Harvey Weinstein down. She was she was attempting to investigate his crimes and he, she, she's an investigative journalist. She was able to gain the trust of many of the stars in Hollywood and t they told her their story and that's really what happened. Emma Zavaios is Prevention and Education Awareness Director at Peace House. She said the journalists in the film helped change the way survivors see themselves and tell their stories. I believe more people are open to reporting and speaking up about this after the Me Too movement. So yes, there's more people um, that are less scared to reporting and you know accessing services, but we still have barriers. Although Cantor and Toei's work led to widespread use of the term Me Too, it was actually coined in 2006 on social media by sexual assault survivor and activist Tarana Burke. Peace House, in collaboration with Park City Film and sponsored by Utah Film Studios, will screen She Said next week with a panel discussion following the film. Zavallo said the panel will include Liliana Olvera Arbon, Executive Director of Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault, and Summit County Attorney Margaret Olson. There will be two powerful voices in this panel, so you do not want to miss this panel. She said we'll screen Thursday, March 9th at 7 p.m. at the Santee Auditorium, located on the third floor of the Park City Library at 1255 Park Ave. Registration for the event can be found in the web version of this report at kpcw.org. Admission is free, and counselors will be on hand for support. If you or anyone you know is in crisis, the Peace House hotline phone number is 1-800-647-9161, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Andrea Buchanan, KPCW News. Wednesday's Summit County Council meeting was dominated by a controversial development hearing. But before the crowd showed up, the council had other business to attend to. KPCW's Connor Thomas has more. The, the Summit County Council voted unanimously to move the Snyderville Basin Cemetery District forward by appointing a board. A five-person board of trustees to oversee the district is a necessary first step before work begins to find a cemetery location. So the council will begin fielding applications soon. Currently, there is no cemetery in the Snyderville Basin, and Basin residents cannot be buried in the Park City Cemetery, which itself only has four plots left. To answer the need, in 2013, the council created a district in the basin that would contain a future cemetery. Then the issue got tabled for about a decade. Now there's a renewed push from a community of locals to provide their neighbors with a final resting place. Independent land use planner and Snyderville Basin resident Krista Cassidy got involved with the cemetery project after a conversation she had with her dad Randy in 2020. And it kind of became clear that that question about where he'd be laid to rest was really troubling him. Um, he's lived in the Snyderville Basin for almost 30 years, and um, burial is important to him, um, as is being buried in a place where he has a connection. Sally Cousins Elliott is a planner who has been part of the committee spearheading the cemetery process from the beginning. She thinks it's going to happen this time around, and said members of the council seem amenable to the idea. Chris introduced Krista as, you know, somebody who was going to make this happen and see it through to the end. So I think this time we're a go. It's a process that will take time and effort. Councilmember Tanya Hansen said the cemetery's board of trustees will need to consider things like soil quality, land cost, and the question of funding. So there's a lot more to it than just going out and going, oh, this looks good, let's do it there. So there will be some work that needs to be done. The council was also scheduled to discuss a new facility adjoining the Justice Center at Interstate 80 and U.S. Route 40 the Silver Summit County Services Building. 
The county council heard some aspects of the proposed design, like a high-tech county council meeting space, bigger meeting hall, dedicated space to store important records, child care for county employees, and public works facilities. The new building would also house the Department of Motor Vehicles. All this would free up space in the Richens building, which could be subsequently remodeled. But the project is almost $10 million over budget. The county heard from High Valley Transit, which recently broke ground on its new facility nearby, that the site has a layer of bedrock below it, which has increased construction estimates. Deputy County Manager Jana Young said the rest of the deficit happened because some of the project's aspects were not factored into the county's budget last year. So it should have been only a $5 million difference this time around, which is still substantial, but we can explain again through the site conditions and site work as well as inflation. Due to time constraints and technical difficulties at the meeting, the council tabled the budget discussion for a special session. That special session will be Friday, March 3rd at 3.30 p.m. in the South Summit County Services Building in Camas. The council could decide to amend certain aspects of the design to resolve the budgeting problems. A link to join the meeting via Zoom can be found in the online version of this report at kpcw.org. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. We live in a world with a multiplicity of media streams to choose from, but the media world of the 1950s was far more limited. And no program dominated the media landscape at the time like I Love Lucy, a show that actually attracted 44 million viewers for one episode at a time when the U.S. population was about 160 million. The creator, producer, and head writer of I Love Lucy was Jess Oppenheimer. His son, Greg Oppenheimer, is the author of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Sitcom, a comedy play that will be performed Sunday afternoon at the Eccles Theater. Greg's joined us this morning. Thanks for being here, Greg. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Greg, can you share a, with the audience a bit about your background and how that led you to write the play? Well, after my dad passed away in 1988, um, he had started his memoir. And uh, when, when I looked at the, uh, the manuscript as far as he's gotten, I, I just thought that this is just such a wonderful uh, piece of history and, and, and humor. He is a very funny writer, obviously. Uh, I, I, I decided I was going to finish it. So... That led me into the whole world of Isla Lucy. I mean, growing up, he had told me all these stories of what went on behind the scenes, uh, and, and I was very familiar with that. But uh, I had to do a lot more research and reconnect with, with the, the Lucy world, the people who had worked on the show. And I, I finished his, his book and published it as, as Laughs, Luck, and Lucy, how I came to create the most popular sitcom of all time. And, um, and then I, uh, every 15... 20 years or so, somebody makes a, a movie about uh, Isla Lucy or Lucy Ball and Desi Arnaz, and they're always so grim, but the true story of how that show came to be and how it changed TV forever is more like a sitcom than, than the, these the dramas that they were doing. So I, I decided somebody needs to dramatize this and, and, and make a, a, sh a show that's as funny as, the, as Isla Lucy. And t tell us a little bit about the show itself. Is it, is it a traditional play? Is it more like a radio play? T t how does it work? Uh, it, it's really unique. It, it, the LA Theater Works uh, it, it does radio plays. Uh, they're they're, they're um, the top uh, radio play producer in the United States. Uh, you know, in, 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 uh, in the UK, the BBC has continued to do it, and the Guild Major Radio never ended when TV came. But in the United States, everything moved to TV. But but the, the beautiful thing about a radio play is the, the actors stand on the stage. There are uh, uh, mic stands that they stand at. You, you lose yourself in the play. There are costume changes and, and, and uh, uh, various you know, visual effects and sound effects that, that let your imagination take over. But 
un- unlike the way it was done back back then, the actors are facing the audience, so you're looking right into their face. Everything is like a close up. <laughs> uh, so the connection with the audience is 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 what is absolutely unique. It's wonderful, and I, I'm just in love with this medium. So that's the way I wrote the play. Is the, the same way Lucy did her radio show in 1948 to 1951. So that preceded I Love Lucy. And does the show sort of give give the audience a perspective on how I Love Lucy was created and some of the things that went on behind the scenes? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, it starts with the radio show. I mean, you watch them fittingly doing the radio show as a radio show on, on the stage uh, and, and uh, shows exactly how that led into uh, the, the, the television show. And, and, and the, the play is actually called Lucy Loves Desi, a funny thing that happened on the way to the sitcom. Um, because you know, Desi played such a big part behind the scenes in, in how the show came together, along with my father, and, and, and Lucy certainly got her, got her legs in, too. You know, you mentioned, I think it's widely accepted, that I Love Lucy essentially created the modern sitcom. What are some of the elements of the show that had never been done before? What was it that was so innovative? Well, the, the thing that had the biggest impact was the, the invention of the rerun. <laughs> and, and the reason... <laughs> There were no reruns back then. Uh, the networks would show a show once, and that was it. And all the big shows were done from New York live, and so they weren't even on film. So you could take a picture off the TV tube. It was called a kinescope, lousy quality. Uh, you know, a closed circuit uh, monitor in, at the network. They would take a picture of. And, and if you've ever taken a picture off uh, off of your TV, even with your iPhone, the quality is not great. Uh, so. They they were shooting this film in, in, in they were filming this in Hollywood I Love Lucy uh, in front of an audience the first show to do that uh, and when Lucy got pregnant she had to take a lot of time off for maternity leave and was right in the middle of the second season and the only way they could fill up the season because back then seasons were thirty nine weeks uh, and, and uh, they, they needed thirty nine shows so they they convinced the the network uh, Desi and my, my father convinced the network to let them rerun shows and uh the network didn't think it would, it would work but actually the reruns got bigger ratings than, than the first time they were on because so many more people had just bought tv sets for the first time can you talk a little bit about the dynamic between your father and the ricardos in the creative process how did it work um well the, the Desi and Lucy and the entire cast trusted the, the, the writers implicitly so much so that they never saw the scripts or discussed the scripts or the stories or what was going on with them until they saw it at the Monday morning read through. The first table read was you know, it was totally new to them, and uh, um, you know that, that's not the case with, in a lot of shows. But they just uh, had great faith in their writers, uh, and and the amazing thing is there's only, there were only three writers, and now a show has fifteen or twenty writers in the writers' room. And they put out what you know, twenty shows a year. They had three writers, one of whom was the producer, my father, and uh, they they did forty shows in the first forty weeks. Uh, but there was a, such mutual respect between the writers and and, and Lucy and Desi, and, and I, I, I think that comes through in, in the show as well, uh, together with the, the humor of everybody involved. You can't make a show that's this successful as a comedy that's made people laugh over so many decades uh, without a bunch of people that have great senses of humor. 
you know, given the number of hats your father was wearing, can you share with the audience a little bit about what it was like for him in terms of, you know, how many hours a week was he at, at this job? Did you get to see him much when you were growing up? Uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was quite young back then because uh, the show went on um, the year I was born. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, he was working incredible hours. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, my mom didn't get to see him very much either. Uh, one of the things I find interesting, there was an episode of the radio show um, uh, that, 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 that I'm particularly fond of because Lucy and Desi wanted to, to sell the network that, that the, the American public would accept them as a couple because mm. the CBS didn't want Desi to be Lucy's co-star. They wanted an all-American uh, husband for, for Lucille Ball. And so they did a vaudeville tour. Uh, but the vaudeville tour started June 1st in Chicago, and they the the, the uh, Lucy's radio show went until you know, late late June. So they the only way they could make it work was uh, start. They worked really hard, you know, every day late into the night, and they put out like three shows a week. They recorded three shows a week for the of the radio show, uh, and usually they'd done one one per week. So during that period, uh, they were. Uh, they were working around the clock and my dad never came home. And then, uh, they finished the last show. Um, dad, you know, that was the end of the season. Uh, Lucy and Desi headed off to Chicago. My father finally went home for the first time in I don't know how long. And exactly nine months later, I was born. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, you made a reference to Desi Arnaz's role. Um, I think many people are certainly aware of, of, of Lucille Ball's talent, and, and she was obviously the star of the show. But I, I take it Arnaz did a lot of things behind the scenes that people weren't aware of. Do you, do you think his role is sufficiently appreciated? I think it is now. Uh, I, you know, he, he's, you know, people who know anything about the background of the show know that he was a, tr- a tremendous businessman. I mean, he, he, he was the one who insisted that Lucy and Desi should own the show outright. They should not own by CBS, but she, he and Lucy should own the show. Lucy, you know, just went along with Desi on that. She wasn't the mastermind there. She, she's said to him basically, you know, well, I suppose it would be nice for us to be able to show the films to our children <laughs> at home movies. Uh, but Desi, and it, it wasn't that he envisioned the whole syndication uh, business. He just thought there was there was something there. He, he said, "They said, you know, nobody will show these shows in the United States after they've run on the network." He said, "Then I'll I'll sell them overseas." Um, so he, he had the right instincts, and uh, it, it made a huge difference. Uh, he he really and then he ended up running Desi. He was running Desi Lou, and he was that was the biggest studio in Hollywood. I mean, it was it, every TV show after I Lucy was so successful, everybody wanted to do TV the way I Lucy was done. Uh, and, uh, and so they came to Desi Lou to do it. And so it, it was just putting out, and they, they, they did Star Trek, Mission Impossible, you know, yeah, countless number of shows. And there were a number of amazing innovations, like, like the, the three cameras that I take at all the sitcoms after that sort of fell into for a long time. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, Greg, the, 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 you mentioned earlier that every few years somebody makes a movie. Um, you know, the Sorkin film last year highlighted the Red Scare incidents. Can you share with your audience your perspective on that Red Scare incident and how the strategy for dealing with it was developed? Well, that, that actually was, you know, the, the, the movie uh, showed 
great tension and and uh, uh, really a lot of animosity between uh, between the, the the characters in that in the, that were putting together I Love Lucy. But actually, everybody's pulled together so much during that time. I, I, that, that was everybody was very supportive because they were all uh, you know worried about what was going to happen. Uh, and they and they really all loved each other. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's a fictionalized drama, the, mm-hmm. the Aaron Sorkin film. Uh, and in fact, that was, um, you know, I Lucy never used a, uh, a laugh track. Hmm. What you're hearing is the uh, actual sound of the audience laughing. And they also had a no retake rule. There were so there was only one take. In fact, it only took 45 minutes to film an Isla Lucy in front of an audience. Wow. Today, you know, if, I don't know if you've ever been to a sitcom uh, taping, but it, it takes three or four hours because um, they do everything two or three times. But so they they, did, they didn't use laugh track. But the, the only time the, the editor told me, Danny Kahn, the only time they ever actually had to edit the laugh track and 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 modify it was not to goose the laughter, not to increase it. it was on that episode. Uh, when, when Desi made a speech to the audience about, you know, uh, there's nothing read. The only thing read about Lucy is, is her hair, and even that's not legitimate. Uh, <laughs> and, and they were so supportive of her that they they laughed too much <laughs> at, at, at everything. Even when they weren't making jokes, they would laugh at every line. And they had to they had to tone some of that down and and, and edit that because it was just unbelievable. They, that's how the, the degree of support that she had from the audience. We've been talking with Greg Oppenheimer, the author of the play Desi Loves Lucy. A funny thing happened on the way to the sitcom, which will be screened on Sunday at the Eccles Theater. Greg, thanks for joining us. Here in the studio with us to give us a preview of next week's Pledge Drive is Sarah Irvin. Good morning. Thank you, Roger. Yes, the KPCW Winter Pledge Drive starts bright and early Monday morning. We're going to kick things off with the KPCW News Team at 8 a.m. And we really want to encourage people to take a look at what we have planned for the whole week. We have about 22 different nonprofit organizations coming on air with us to help us fundraise. These are nonprofits that use KPCW all year long through our uh, local news stories, our public service announcements. They come on uh, and help us fundraise a couple of times a year. We're very excited to have a couple of new groups joining us this year. And the whole schedule is available online at kpcw.org. And when you are there, you might consider, because next week's weather could be wild. Powder week. Yeah, exactly. You might be heading out skiing, but you don't want to miss out on all the fun of the pledge drive. Well, you can make your pledge now online at kpcw.org. And you can actually, in the comments of your online donation, uh, simply state which hour you would like credited for your donation. You'll be helping, of course, KPCW. It's a fundraiser for our station, but you'll also be helping local nonprofits earn free underwriting when they fundraise for us. So if you'd like to support KPCW and one of the fantastic nonprofit organizations coming on air with us. You can check out the whole schedule online and make your donation now. And we'll be sure to thank you on air next week when we are live with the Pledge Drive. But, 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 but Sarah, if I do it that way, do I still get access to those great premiums? Yes, you do. 
You can actually select a gift. That's an option when you do an online donation. Uh, you just say, yes, I want a gift, please. And we will follow up with you and make sure that you get uh, one, of the, one of the fabulous premiums we have from local restaurants. We have ski day passes. We have summer bike haul passes, uh, all kinds of activity passes. So that is an option if you donate now. But of course, we do want people calling in next week live. So if you're not out on the slopes, we'd love for you to tune in to the pledge drive. It will be happening all week long.